I'm going to invite you to find your seats. We'll have time afterwards for fellowship and to connect again with one another. For many of our Asians, Happy Lunar New Year, time of celebrations and festivities. So glad that you could be with us this morning. Um, as you find your seats, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. We've been start, we started a series in James a few weeks ago called Living in a Fractured World. And I think it does, I don't need to explain the fractured world and culture that we live in cur- currently. But James, because it's wisdom literature, gives us a way forward. And it's not to just deal with it or to kind of hold on, but it's actually a way to live with wisdom so that we might not experience fracturedness, but rather that we might actually experience wholeness. We might actually, actually experience healing and restoration. And that's what the book or the letter of James offers us. And so I'm going to invite Lynn Kane. She's been on the worship team and leading us on the keys this morning. Uh, we're going to read chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. You could turn to page 1011, 1011. Or you could follow along on the screen as we look at verses 19 through 27. So let's give attention to God's word. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We know that as we just heard from your word, we are called to be doers who do. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to do that. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see so that we might be transformed by the good news of the gospel. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a recent book that... Jason, who's our church planning intern, and I have been reading together, and the title of the book, title of the book is called Leadership and Self-Deception. It's been on the New York Times bestseller, sold over a million books. It's by the Arbinger Institute after a lot of research, and the pre- premise of the book and the research that they found was that the reason for dysfunction in organizations and the reason for trouble in relationships And problems is because it's the result of self-deception. In other words, we deceive ourselves into evaluating situations and individuals in such a way that we justify our own actions and belittle those around us. Now, if you're wondering, well, what does that actually mean? They give a great example at the beginning where it's a husband, a wife, and a little baby crying in the middle of the night. Now, the husband hears the baby crying. And his instinct is to get up and go help the baby. But he doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is because he stays in bed thinking that his wife, he's justified by his actions and deceiving himself to thinking that his actions are appropriate because his wife is lazy, inattentive, and incompetent as a mother. Self-deception ruins organizations and institutions and marriages and relationships at school and friendships because we are self-deceived people. And because we're self-deceived, we justify our actions and the ways we think about other people. Now, what I want to share with us this morning is that self-deception doesn't just corrupt organizations. It doesn't just corrupt relationships, but it actually corrupts our faith. 
I think that's what James is talking about when he talks about how religion can either be worthless because we deceive ourselves or religion can be pure and undefiled. And at the heart of it is our self-deception of who we believe we are as followers of Jesus. And James wants to address this here when he talks about true or pure or undefiled religion. Religion has gotten, and Christianity for that matter, has gotten such a bad rap, hasn't it? With the pandemic, with masks or no masks, vaccines, no vaccines, virtual, in-person, You bring politics into it. You bring racial unrest to it. You bring issues with social justice, whether it's gun laws or abortion or whatever it is. Where have we seen most of the vitriol and the anger pointed at? It's the church. When we think about religion, our culture, and if you ask neighbors who do not follow Jesus, I think they would say religion equals self-righteousness, abusive power, hypocrisy, that it's just a bunch of rules, dogma, abusive pastors and priests, institutions that are corrupt, that's religion. One that is worthless. So do we just get rid of religion? That's not what James says. James says, rather, there is one that is pure and undefiled. And that's what he offers to us this morning. How do we have a, a religion a faith that is pure, that brings fractured people and institutions and cultures and brings wholeness and life and freedom. Briefly, I just want to be able to look at three things that James seems to allude to when he says, this is what true, pure, undefiled religion looks like. The first is this. He says, we need to receive the word meekly. Look at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. When you hear the word implanted word, it is something that is outside of ourselves that is implanted within us. Tim Keller, who's a former pastor in New York at Redeemer Press, he said, think of it like this. It's like an acorn, right? And when you plant, when you implant or plant an acorn into the ground, that little acorn has enough wood, bark, energy to be able to grow and be transformed into a 60-foot oak tree that brings life and shade to its creation. And what James is saying is for us to experience a pure, undefiled religion is to be able to receive the word of God that is life for us that saves our souls. Another way to think about it that I just heard this past week was from an author and speaker, and her name is Paige Benton Brown. And as she led in the Bible study with James, she said, she, she described when she was pregnant with her children. When that child was in the womb, implanted, that life that was inside of her, what did she do? Well, not only did she receive it, but it required, as James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Why? Because that deters, impedes, it kills life. And so what did she do? Like many of you moms here this morning, she stayed away from sushi. She stayed away from good wine and beers. 
stayed away from deli meats. Why? Because those are the things that she had to put away so that the life inside of her would grow. And that's what James is saying. The first thing we have to consider is to receive the word of God. But we have to do it with meekness and humility. I think I'm guilty of this. But when I sometimes hear other pastors, when I'm visiting a church or I hear, I'm like, and they're preaching, I'm like, oh, I know that. I've heard of it. Oh, I would have done that better or I would have done this differently, right? There's no humility that I come to God's word with when I hear it on a Sunday morning. When I come to the daily Bible reading plan, there's times where I just skim it. Why? Because I'm like, oh, I already know that story. I already know that. Why? Let's just skip through this. I got a lot to do today. That's not humility, meekness. Or some of us, we look at the scriptures and we go, well, I'm good with some of it. The other parts I'm not even going to deal with because I disagree. But is there a humility to learn and grow even in areas that you might disagree with, value systems that you might actually not have, but yet God's word says, this is who I am. This is my character and this is the way I desire the world to work because I created it. And though we might disagree, do we have an open hand to be able to say, I'm willing to learn and grow? That's what receiving with humility and meekness looks like in our lives. And that's the beginning of an undefiled, pure religion. And it's this receiving that saves our souls, as James says. It's a life or death matter. Do we come to God's word with that sort of passion and urgency that this word that I received that's been implanted into my heart by the Spirit is life or death? And it's not the kind of life or death where it saves your soul because you took, you know, a lot of us have peanut allergies. And it's that EpiPen that saves you that one time and you're good to go. Or maybe it's a fire that you have in the kitchen and so you bring out the fire extinguisher and you spray it and you're, you're good, you're, you've been saved. No, what James is actually saying, I think it's more like high blood pressure medicine, right? It's high cholesterol medicine that you have to take. Some of us or parents or others you know who are on dialysis. It's these things that day by day, as you take it regularly, as you receive God's word that's been implanted into your life, it saves your soul from death unto life. That's what receiving the implanted word looks like, meekly, because it saves our soul so that we might be transformed into massive, huge oak trees that bring life for others. But that's not enough. We are called, as James says in verses 22 to 25, we need to be doers of the word. A lot of do's and does and doers. Listen here, verses 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? You can't just receive it. Deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In other words, it's a call to action. You can't just receive it and be good. But we're called to do. We come on a Sunday morning and we hear God's word. You know, half in, half out. You're thinking about other things, but you 
I'll give you the, you know, I'll give you credit. You're listening, right? You're hearing, you're receiving. You come to Bible studies on Wednesday nights as we go through Ecclesiastes, and you're receiving more. You're speaking about it, you're talking about it, you're, di- you're dissecting it. You do, maybe some of us or a lot of us, we go and use a daily Bible reading plan or something of your own, and you're in God's Word. But yet, you got kids, you got friends at school, you got teachers, you got coworkers, you got neighbors, and you realize nothing has changed in my life. Nothing has transformed. I'm not that oak tree. I'm still that acorn. Why? Well, James gives us this beautiful illustration of why that's the case for us. And he says there's two kinds of people, and he uses this mirror illustration, right? He says God's word is like a mirror. And it's not any old mirror. It's like the 50 times magnification. Is that even a thing? Three times, seven times magnification that many of us, not a lot, half of us use probably, <laughs> And we look at it to be able to put on makeup or we kind of look at the imperfections of our faith and you can see every single pore in your face, all the imperfections. Well, that's what James is saying. He's like, the Word of God is a mirror. And it shows us who we are. Everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's two kinds of people. There's the one that looks at it and sees all their imperfections, all the pores, everything that needs to be done. You have bed head, you know, I shared in the first service, some of us, when you go to Chipotle, right, that's the most dangerous place to eat because if you go to work after your lunch or dinner, you always have cilantro stuck in the middle of your teeth somewhere, right? Now, the first group of people, what do they do? They see themselves in the mirror, into God's word, and they just walk away, and they do nothing about it. The second group of people, they look at God's word, and they take action. They're doers who do and act. And the difference with these two different groups is what? He says, there's one who forgets. And there's one who remembers the word. If we want to be doers of God's word, we need to remember the word that we received. Do you know studies have showed? And I think these are pretty accurate. The moment you leave, after I give the benediction, you've lost 50% of the sermon. By the time you come back next Sunday, you only retain 5%. I would disagree. My home is probably 0% as soon as we get home. (laughs) Because we'll we'll be at the lunch table and we'll be like, well, what did you learn? I want to pry a little bit. And, you know, how do you want to apply this in your life? And they're like, I don't remember anything from the sermon. Didn't you take notes? They're like, yeah, but I don't remember anything. And until I give them one key word, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember, right? It begins with remembering so that we might actually do. Are you someone who forgets, who's received it, but immediately it's forgotten? Or do you remember and do it? It takes a community right here, in your community groups, with friends you have here. We need to be able to encourage one another to remember so that we might be called to action and do. It can't just be receiving. We need to do the work that God has called us to do. One Great illustration from a pastor. He said it this way uh, to really kind of show us the realities and maybe the the short-sightedness of how we lack doing. Imagine I tell one of my girls or my boy to go clean their room. A few hours later, I return to the room and nothing has changed. It's still same old mess. Nothing has been moved. Nothing's been cleaned. And I ask one of them what's happened. And she says, or he says, well, dad, what you said was really good. 
It was moving. It made me cry. So I got some of my girlfriends together, and we discussed what you said. We even translated it to the original language. We did some word studies and talked about how to apply it in our lives. We prayed about it together, and it was probably one of the best studies we've ever done, ever. That's how we respond to God's word. We're tickled in our ears. Give me something good to say that's thought-provoking. Maybe a little scandalous, and I'm good to go. But if we want to be a faith community, a religion that is pure and undefiled, not one that's worthless, that the world is watching, we need to not only receive but do, to remember God's word and to do it. What does that look like? James, in verses 26 and 27, helps us to see what that actually looks like. Follow along with me here. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now James is going to flesh all of this out as we continue in this series. But I just want to allude to what he's talking about and what it's, what he or God requires of us to be doers. And the first thing he says is to have a pure religion that's undefiled is to bridle one's tongue. What's a bridle? Well, it's used for horses. Why? To control them in the direction that they would go. And so what James is saying is like, you got to bridle your tongue. Because in controlling your tongue, you control your body and the things we do, the things you post on social media, the comments you leave on people's social media. The way you respond to your boss, to your children, to your parents, to your friends at school. All of these ways, what James is saying, you've got to be, as we saw in verse 19, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? That's all connected, isn't it? Someone who's slow to hear and rather talk more, what does that do? You're not listening to the person and you just get more angry and fed up. You ever seen that, social, that viral video of that little boy who's like, listen, Linda. Have you guys seen that? You guys know what I'm talking about. He's saying listen, but he's, not, he's never listening to his mom when he stole that, he ate that cupcake that he shouldn't have eaten. And all we do is like, listen, listen, listen. I got something to say. Why? Because we're in a cultural moment that says you need to have all the right answers. And if you don't, you're canceled. You have to have everything put together. But the, but the faith we live is to say, no, I don't. There's a meekness, a humility. I'm going to learn from the other. It could be social issues going on in our time. Are we actually able to listen to the other brother or sister in Christ who has a differing view? Are we able to be able to humble ourselves and to be able to learn from the other? Because there we actually see Anger tempered. Why do we even use the word triggered, right? Triggered, it's immediate reaction of our emotions. But one who is slow to speak, quick to listen, allows us to be able to listen and bridle our tongue in the ways we interact with others. So that why? We might be able to see a religion that is pure and undefiled and transformed by the gospel. 
But the other thing that James wants to allude for us this morning is to be able to address the marginal, the marginalized. He says what? He says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. In the Old Testament, widows and orphans were always in a pair. Why? It represented the poor, the the defenseless, the marginalized, the invisible, the, the weak, the voiceless. And the people of God were to be like their father, the father to the fatherless, to the defenseless. And to be doers of God's word is to be able to think about who are on the margins, who are the invisible. I was so struck by this again and again this week because as I reflected in the conversations I was having with my kids, I realized what do they think I care about for them? Their happiness, right? Don't we all say that? I just want them to be happy. Now, that's not wrong, but is that it? I think if I were to ask my kids this morning, what do mom and dad care about? I don't know what they would say. I'm a little scared. That's why I didn't ask them this week. (laughs) But even as we witness a beautiful baptism, the vows we took, it's not just parents, it's all of us adults who are in the family of God as parents, Spiritual parents to these children. There's no joke. At the beginning of this month, there was an institute and the University of Chicago that, re- that did research to look at attendance pre-pandemic to now. And you know where the largest difference was? It was amongst young adults under 30. One in three have stopped going to church after the pandemic. Why? I think it's, they didn't tell why, but I think it's this. It's a religion that is worthless. And are we, as spiritual parents and parents, setting them up to say, this is what is worth it. This is life. To bridle our tongue. To visit the orphans and the widows. To care for the marginalized. What are we showing the next generation? Now, I know that's a lot. And it could... Shame us, as I was probably struggling a little this week with that shame, guilt, condemnation. But I don't know if you notice a word that was used here of God's word for us. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. How is this liberty? How is this freedom for us? When all I feel is guilt. Well, as Jason reminded us with the cleansing, The law points us to Jesus. The law points us to Jesus. The one who was the word that became flesh, but not only did he become flesh, he was the doer of all that he did, and he did it perfectly. He was the one who held his tongue and used his speech with gentleness and with pointedness. He was the one who was slow to anger. He got angry there were times, but he was slow to anger, and it was righteous anger. Let's just be, let's not kid ourselves. Yes, there are times where we experience righteous anger, like this morning with the shootings. But that's not what we're concerned about. Most of our anger is with everything around us and with ourselves. But Jesus was slow to anger. And he was the one who visited the sinful, the marginalized, the weak, the poor, the scandalous, 
Jesus, in other words, did everything perfectly. And because of him, even though we fail and stumble and we do not do the things that God calls us to do and we don't remember and we don't receive, we can look to Christ and lean on him. He has done it perfectly so that though it does not change the law, right? The nature of the law still remains. It is no longer the basis of our relationship with God. It is an expression of how we are to respond to the love and grace and mercy of our Savior who did it perfectly, who, submit, who submitted perfectly, who died and sacrificed himself perfectly so that though we might stumble and fail and sin and not be perfect, he has done it for us. And we are forgiven. We are loved. He calls us his own. And nothing can ever change that. Even when the worst is known about you, what? Love is still offered. That's why the law is liberty for us. So receive his word. Remember it and do it. Respond to this beautiful law that he's given to us. This is what true religion looks like because it moves us from self-deception to freedom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, we admit and we confess we are imperfect. At times, we, we outright rebel against you because we want to do the things we want to do. And we are prone to wander as we will sing. But thanks be to God because of Jesus, who is perfect in his obedience, perfect in his submission, perfect even to death on the cross, so that, Lord, in our disobedience, we might experience grace and mercy, grace upon grace. So, Lord, give us that renewed renewed hope and joy and freedom that only comes from you. Even as we come to the table, strengthen us, encourage us. Let this food that we eat, the bread and the cup, nourish us so that we might live onto obedience, that we might be transformed like an oak tree, not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done and what you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.